to week two of this summer's teachings through the book of 2 Timothy on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. This week, Laura lays out six major themes that run through Paul's second letter to Timothy. You might notice these themes as you practice repetitive reading of the book and throughout the rest of our study this summer. Let's listen to Laura as she further prepares our hearts to receive God's word. sisters. I'm Laura Swain, and I am so excited to share with you what God's been teaching me about 2 Timothy. My first summer study with Dayton Women in the Word was four years ago when we studied the book of Daniel, and I thought it would be fitting today to open us up in a time of prayer through Daniel's praise and thanksgiving song to God. So pause the video real quick to give you time to turn in your Bible to Daniel 2, 20 to 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what was asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Oh God, you are so good to us. We thank you for giving wisdom so generously like you did with Daniel, like you did with Timothy. You give good and generous gifts to us. We ask that as we continue to feast on your word, Lord, that you would steady our hearts and steady our resolve today, too, as we learn more about you and draw closer to you. Amen. Now, I come from a very competitive family, and our favorite board game is Settlers of Catan. My older brother, Chris, is a very good salesman and excellent Catan player, and he teases me sometimes. He says that my bartering strategy in the game when we trade cards would be terrible in the sales world. He'll laugh when I say things like, I'll give you a sheep for a wheat, but no pressure. Even today, I'm tempted to soften the impact of Paul's message as I share the important themes of 2 Timothy with you. I want to say to you, Paul calls you to suffer, but no pressure. I want to give you an out especially if you're already suffering. But there are several moments in 2 Timothy when Paul specifically denounces people who say one thing and do another. Whether it's so-called friends who abandon him when he's imprisoned, or people with weak minds who are easily deceived and only want to listen to what makes them feel good, Paul is very clear. Good intentions are not good enough. When my brother and I were talking more about this and more about my settler's shortcomings, he shared why it doesn't bother him to hold people accountable in sales because it shows he cares. He said to me, the reward of feeling good about intending to do something can lead to never doing the thing we intended to do. No pressure trading does not move the game of settlers forward. No pressure Bible teaching 
does not move the kingdom of God forward. And no pressure discipleship does not move a child of God forward in their calling. In fact, you feel so much pressure when you see how high the standard of holiness is in the Bible. Turn to Matthew 5, 18 and 19 in your Bible. And we find Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount where he tells everyone he hasn't come to get rid of the law, to get rid of the requirements. He's come to fulfill them. This is what he says. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to explain that he is ratcheting up these requirements to reflect what has always been the intent of the law from the beginning. You've heard it said not to murder? Well, anger is the real issue, and it counts against you as murder. You've heard it said not to commit adultery? Even so much as look at someone lustfully, and you've already sinned. Jesus is showing them, and us, that grace does not remove the requirements to follow him. It is strengthening us to do what was once impossible. This is intense, and Paul knows it. In your annotated copy of 2 Timothy, I've got mine right here today, find 2 Timothy 1.9 and point to the words that say, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God has saved us from something and for something. He saved us from death and for hard and holy work. The book of 2 Timothy has six themes I'm going to share with you today that emphasize what that calling entails and how we're empowered to do it. It's certainly impossible work if we try to do it on our own, but there's really good news, and it's our main truth for today. God calls his children to hard and holy work, and he empowers us to do it. Before we get into the themes, I'd like to pause and talk a little bit about why we're spending time doing this today. Last week, Jillian shared that knowing context can help you better understand a book's intended meaning. Knowing Paul's history with Timothy, knowing about his conversion story, knowing the approximate date of the book in the genre of farewell discourse, all these things help us better understand what Paul means by what he says. This week, I'll show you that knowing themes help us understand the universal meaning that's available, the things that apply to us as well. This preview will prime your mind to see Paul's main ideas throughout your personal study, and it will also give you a glimpse of how these themes run across the entire Bible. We're not exhausting these themes this week by any means. Your teachers, through the coming weeks, will touch on each of them as they come up in those passages. For today, we taste. In order to be on the lookout for these themes in your personal reading, you can find them two ways. One is through keywords or phrases. And I've provided a few for you today, but I hope you remember they're not a comprehensive list. They're meant as a starting point. The second way you can find themes in Paul's letter is by looking into the meaning of what he's saying. 
Your discussion group leader and your summer study materials will give you three reflection questions to focus on when you study the summer. What does it mean? What does it say? And how can it change me? That second step, what does it mean, may lead you to uncover some themes that Paul is touching on that didn't seem obvious at first in the passage. For example, God, Paul uses the word apostle a couple times in this book. In fact, it's the third word in his letter. Apostle, according to Mounds' dictionary, tells is a mark of, sorry, suffering is a mark of apostleship, which isn't something that I knew before. And so we see that in the first line of this book, Paul introduces the theme of suffering and he connects it to his identity. So today, we'll look at these six themes. Theme one, remembering. Theme two, teaching. Theme three, suffering and shame. Theme four, in you. Theme five, confidence. And theme six, be strengthened. We'll conclude by reviewing what the work is and how it's possible, and then we'll talk about our next week's study tool and reading. Let's get started, shall we? Theme one is remembering. Just a reminder about these key words. They're not exhaustive, they're a starting point, and they're not the only way to find themes in the text. Key words around the theme of remembering, remind, remember, know, and aware. In 2 Timothy, Paul names several obstacles for any believer who tries to move steady on in the faith, and some specific ones that have to do with his own experience in Timothy's. They include false teachers, false friends, normative idolatry, gossip and idle talk, and imprisonment. These obstacles account for Paul's frequent use of words like remind and remember. Timothy already knows the gospel. Jillian shared with you that they have a decades-long relationship. He's been in ministry with Paul for years, but Paul knows that the sin all around you means you constantly have to bathe your heart and mind in truth. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy is Moses's farewell discourse, given as a speech and throughout the book, he exhorts the Israelites to rehearse these truths to each other that he's sharing over and over and over again so that they do not forget who their God is. You can turn to Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. It starts out with a very famous prayer called the Shema. It's a Jewish prayer said every morning and every evening and is an example of living out this remembering. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses has seen firsthand what a forgetful people the Israelites are. The books of Exodus and Numbers are a painful view into this cycle of sin and forgiveness and rescue and revolt. It's horrible to read it straight through because it's very frustrating, but also uneasily familiar. 
Right after the Shema in the passage we just read, Moses goes on to tell the Israelites they are going to soon settle in a land they did not acquire, reap harvests they did not sow, and build wealth they did not earn. He reminds them that they need to speak these truths again and again so that they have a right view of God, the one who provided all of this bounty for them. We don't just forget who God is because it slips our mind. Tim Mackey, founder of the Bible Project, uses the image of swimming in the ocean and being pulled away by the undercurrent. Has this ever happened to you? It's scary, isn't it? You're swimming in the surf, enjoying the beautiful weather, and you look up, and you haven't the faintest idea where you are or how you got there or how to get back. To guard against this aggressive undercurrent of sin in the world, God has given us help in so many ways to remember. You know, he even models remembering in the scripture. Three of these ways are the word, the church, and rituals or liturgy. First, the word. It's essential and a testimony to the character of God. Immersing ourselves in the Bible like we're doing this summer, teaching and reteaching it to ourselves and others, helps us remember who God is and what he's done. It helps us more readily position ourselves in a posture of humility. It leads to rejoicing and enjoyment over his mercy. Secondly, the church. The church, oh, the church as a community of believers is also essential and can testify to God's character when you are weak, when you're under attack, when you're immobilized by sin or suffering. Paul points Timothy toward past experiences that they shared and warns him about what is to come, shoring up his firm footing in the truth. He's saying to Timothy, remember your grandmother and your mother who taught you? Remember the scriptures you've soaked in your entire life? Remember the cross? Timothy, you have everything you need to carry on this work without me. Thirdly, God gives us habits, rituals, rhythms, routines. Tish Harrison Warren calls this liturgy in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. I enjoyed all the practical tips in this book, but one of them, my favorites, is the liturgy of waking. Warren suggests sitting up in bed and just staying there, lingering for a moment before you get out. Now, there was this quite brief blip in my life. The summer of 2018, I was a morning person. (laughs) But every other moment in my life, waking up is my least favorite part of the day. So sitting there, for 60 seconds is exactly what I need to remind me that my God is right here with me. He cares for me and he directs my steps. Remembering moves you toward a right view of God, yourself, and others. Internal sin and sin surroundings distort our vision. Remembering is like putting on God glasses to see the world rightly. In fact, it's more like having corrective surgery to regain 2020 vision. Now, the same week I was organizing this talk, I fell under attack in so many struggles. I struggled with unrighteous anger, dying dreams. I was so frustrated and felt helpless, and I was resisting the correction of the Holy Spirit. I dug in my heels, furiously yelling inwardly, I just want to be angry, God. 
If you're like me, and there are times when your sin or your suffering paralyzes you, you're not alone. I felt like I did not even want to move in that moment. I turned on my Second Timothy playlist, and I took out these flashcards that I used to organize my talk, the talk about this hard work and how we can do it. And I just looked down and saw this one word, remember, deep breath. I wasn't even praying at this point, just stilling my soul and listening, letting the truth I've sown in my heart replay itself in my mind and do its work on me. Now my feebleness is discouraging, but it does not mean God's work is ruined. It means he's at work in me. In that moment, as I held this index card, I felt like I was studying for a French exam or something. I didn't muster up faith or humility. I didn't even confess my sin to God right away. I remembered. And when faced with who God is and what he's done for his children in the story of the Bible and what in particular he's done for me, I yielded and he softened my heart. If you're immobilized by sin or suffering, you can do this too. And if you're not, if you're in a season of steadiness, keep planting that truth so it's there for you to remember when you're stuck. Theme two, teaching, is one particular way to remember. Keywords you might see in 2 Timothy are charge, gospel, teach, correct, follow, preach, be ready, evangelism, work, and continue. So what does it look like to teach the gospel? Well, gospel is a word that has been convoluted by overuse and misuse, so I think it's worth the time to define it. Now, definitions are important because as we pass this gospel on to others who pass it on to others who pass it on again, it's important we don't distort the message. John Curry spoke about 2 Timothy with Nancy Guthrie on her podcast, Help Me Teach the Bible, and this is what he said. Paul's not entrusting Timothy with theological innovation. What he's to do is pass on what he heard from the apostle. In Greek, gospel is the word euangelion, which means good news. It's a special word to me because my daughter's name is Evangeline, and it comes from this word. I have a long quote to share with you from Mounts' dictionary, so stick with me. The word euangelion was not invented by the gospel writers, but was already in use in the Roman world. It referred to an announcement of glad tidings regarding a birthday, rise to power, or decree of the emperor that was to herald the fulfillment of hopes for peace and well-being in all the world. Mark redefines this concept of glad tidings by introducing his gospel with the phrase, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ implying that it's really the birth and resurrection of Jesus that will change the face of the world in a cosmic way that no earthly king could ever do. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brings true and lasting well-being and peace to the world in fulfillment of Old Testament hope. Breaking all that down, simplifying, the short version is that euangelion means the good news of Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, good news is news. <laughs> By definition, it's meant to be shared, not changed or held back. 
And throughout 2 Timothy, we see Paul urge Timothy to continue what has already been started, to pass on what he's already been given, and to encourage others to do the same. He's reminding Timothy that he's just one small part of a vast faith legacy that honors God. Little bits and pieces that point to this. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul mentions Timothy's family, his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. In 1.13, he says, follow the pattern of my sound teaching. In 2.2, he says, entrust you and Gelion to those who will teach others. And in 3.14, he says, Timothy, remember this lifetime of learning you've had from trusted teachers. Paul is emphasizing passing on the faith as he does it himself. His very act of writing this letter to Timothy is him modeling what he's asking Timothy to do. The relay race image that comes to mind as we watch Paul pass the mission on is like this up-close look at a baton handoff. But I wonder, and I like to use my imagination here, what would it look like if we zoomed out from this very personal handoff? What would this faith legacy look like from all creation and all time? Some pictures that come to my mind are the Tough Mudder. My cousin ran this. It's a military-designed obstacle course with climbing walls and piggyback rides and, yes, a ton of mud. I picture the Color Run, a 5K where runners get powdered with a different color at every kilometer. I also picture the Iditarod, a brutal thousand-mile sled dog race across the Alaskan tundra. I also picture a conga line at a dance party where these dancers dancing around in a line and inviting others to join them. If you put all of these unusual and weird pictures together, what a beautiful image of this faith legacy. There's joy and there's struggle and there's just so many people joined together. Paul shows Timothy that he's not the end point or recipient of this legacy. This handoff does not end with him. He's the middle. He's been pulled into the muddy, colorful, rigorous race slash conga line, and he's not going to stop inviting people. So God calling us to share the euangelion means that today, you and I get to be part of this legacy of faith. In fact, the only reason we're opening up the word of God together today is because Paul, Timothy, and millions of other believers throughout the centuries have passed on this legacy and pulled more people into God's family conga. Isn't it incredible that God calls us to do the same? What a privilege it is to be in the middle of this work, Jesus' work. To know that it doesn't end with us when we proclaim the euangelion, the good news, to the people God has entrusted us with. Now, it's important to know that teaching looks like much more than just preaching on a stage or in a video. All God's family are invited to, in this call to share the euangelion with others. This might look like intentional encouragement, investing in people through discipleship over time, serving others with humility. I'd like you to consider, what does sharing or teaching the gospel look like for me right now? What could it look like? Mull that over, and we'll come back to it at the end of lecture. Theme three is suffering and shame. 
These overlap so much, we're going to look at them together, and they come up so frequently in 2 Timothy, 21 times by my count. Keywords you might see, share in suffering, deserted, turned away, bound, death, endure, persecuted, difficulty, apostle, opposed, ashamed, earnestly remained. Find 2 Timothy 1.8 in your binder, and that's the verse right before what we read last time. Paul says, therefore, and remember that word therefore is a signal to look what came before. So therefore, because God gives you a spirit of power, love, and self-control, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul wants Timothy to know that the suffering servant of Jesus is not an outlier. He knows that from experience, right? Paul also personally faces shame. He's poor, homeless, and in prison. His friends have turned away from him because they don't want to be associated with him. When we see the word suffering so frequently mentioned by Paul, a little alarm bell should be going off, ding, 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 in our minds. Let me think, who else do we know who suffered because he was proclaiming the euangelion, the good news, of God's kingdom coming near? Who else explicitly and frequently talked about the value of suffering and serving God? Who else gave his life out of love? That's right, Jesus. Just as Paul goes before Timothy, entering into shame and suffering for the sake of the gospel, Jesus does this before us too. He enters into shame and suffering to show people love and to glorify God. He came to earth and lived as a man. He ate with sinners. He even died in humiliation on a cross. Last summer at Dayton Women in the Word, we studied the Gospel of Mark, and the kids there made a craft depicting the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9. And my two girls still have theirs hanging in my kitchen window a year later. When I see the morning light shining through these kid-crafted figures, I'm reminded that there is holy work happening in the hard moments. In Mark 9, Jesus had a literal mountaintop experience with three of his closest disciples. There was this brilliant, white, beautiful, perfect light. Visions of ancient prophets. They even heard the voice of Father God speak. Everything was perfect. And then, then they came down. When they come down from the mountain, they immediately encounter lack when their fellow disciples cannot heal a boy who needs to be restored in health. Now, if I were Jesus, I probably just would have hiked right back up the mountain thinking, I don't have time for this nonsense. I just want to stay up here where it's perfect and lovely and holy. But Jesus doesn't do that. He works through it with them. Now, I have my own mountaintop moments with the Lord, and I come down to encounter my kids fighting, my house a mess, And my time, my time is never, ever my own. It feels so abrupt when that happens. And it leads to some cynicism in my heart. And I joke, oh, now we're in the real world. But that doesn't surprise God because he calls his children to minister in the real world. Jesus did not spend his whole ministry bathed in divine light on a mountaintop. In fact, 
being with the messy stuff goes back, way back in the Bible. God pursued the people of Israel in Old Testament and visited Moses in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. He came down to dwell in their tabernacle. He put his words in the mouths of prophets to speak to people who were forsaking him. God's heavenly kingdom came crashing into earth when this little baby Jesus' body touched Mary's very human uterine wall. God loves humanity too much to turn away from the fallout of sin or ignore it. He runs toward it for the sake of a people who has over and over again rejected him. He will not stand idly by while sin corrupts his perfect creation. God does not want his kingdom to be separate and away. He wants us to be set apart right here. He wants to radically disrupt the sinful status quo, so he calls us to go into the middle of the mess. God does not desire that anyone suffer, but he can transform that suffering for great things. And we're reminded of that when we see the work of Jesus on the cross. In God's hands, a Christian's suffering is transformed. It becomes a beacon of his power, a way to love people, and it becomes temporary. Firstly, God turns this Christian suffering into a beacon of his power. In 2 Timothy 1, 15-18, Paul contrasts faithful Onesiphorus with others who turned away from him when he was imprisoned. And it reminds me of how Peter may have felt when he denied Jesus three times the day of the crucifixion. Even though he's hurt and lonely, Paul isn't worried about appearing shameful. He knows very well that the cross shows us that God is so powerful. He takes what was shameful, like a humiliating death on a cross or my constant sin patterns, and he transforms them and changes them to glorify himself. Last week, Jillian showed us how God took Paul, a murderer and enemy of Jesus, and transformed him into a useful tool, a minister teaching about Jesus' mercy that transformed the whole world. Just like God uses death to conquer death, he transforms embarrassment into exaltation, and he makes murderers into ministers. He also has the power to change who you are. He gets rid of your old identity when you decide to follow him, and he makes you into a new person. What a powerful God we have. Secondly, God turns a Christian's suffering into a way to love people. In 2 Timothy 1.8 and 2.3, Paul coins a word to mean share in suffering, and it's really fun to say in Greek. You say, sunkako pateo. You can say it with me if you want. Sunkako pateo. And it means to suffer evils along with someone, to be enduringly adherent. And it's made up of three Greek words, together, evil, endure. Now, our temptation when we see anger or struggle or danger or hurt is that we want to flee and run the opposite way. But Paul tells Timothy to move toward it, to sunkako pateo, to join in and share the suffering with people around him. When we move toward what the world considers foolish or undesirable like Jesus did and does, we bring his compassion to those in need. I've seen this in some of you sisters, those of you who have lost your children. 
I've watched you move so quickly into ministering to the grief of other people while you still nurse the grief of your own child. Your grief is specific and profound, and you show hurting people Jesus when you quite literally sumkako pateo, join and share in suffering. What a beautiful mercy that is. Thirdly, God also turns suffering into something that's temporary. Jesus, he did not stay on the cross, amen? 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says that when we join Jesus in suffering, we also get to share his victory. If you're suffering right now, sister, I would love you to go to the book of 2 Corinthians, especially chapters 4 to 12. This is another letter of Paul's with a main theme of suffering. And it's really hard for me to choose just a few verses to share with you. But 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, you can pause and turn there in your Bible. It directly speaks to the resurrection we get to share with Jesus. I'm going to read you the NLT. We now have this light. In 2 Corinthians 3, right before this, Paul talked about new glory. That's what he's talking about now. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, amen, may also be seen in our bodies. The Bible holds innumerable assurances about how we can have a very real hope in the face of suffering. We could spend months and months on just this one topic. And if that's something that you do need to spend months and months on, please talk to your discussion group leader or a friend or one of us teachers for a few verses to get you started. For every Jesus follower, this world is not our home. This brokenness is not forever. One day, everything, including us, will be made perfect and painless. Thank you, Lord. Theme four is in you. Throughout his letter, Paul reminds Timothy about what God has already given him, put inside him to do the work. Key words around this theme, in you, you then, you however, God gave and dwells. Some of the gifts Paul says God has put in Timothy are his faith, the Holy Spirit, and special specific gifts, for example, teaching other teachers. But Paul specifically names the Holy Spirit as the source of power for every believer. Now, it's important to know that the Holy Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost was not the first time the Spirit came onto the scene. He was there in Genesis 1. He was inspiring all the authors of Scripture. He was dwelling inside the tabernacle, and he was inside John the Baptist and his mom Elizabeth. He came down like a dove to rest on and anoint Jesus at his baptism. But until Pentecost, only a few had received the Holy Spirit to live inside them. Now, because of Jesus' purifying work on the cross, all believers can have this special power inside when God, in his Spirit, comes to dwell in us. With the Holy Spirit inside, each of us who believes, we have power. 
This power does not come from us, but it does live in us. It enables us to do work that would otherwise seem impossible. And of course, there will be times when we do not feel this power. In fact, the last three years of my life have been marked by a feeling of powerlessness. In April 2017, I tore my meniscus, which is the cartilage around your knee, and it's often a very mild injury, but mine was serious and required surgery. So that was five months of couch sitting, which is difficult when you have a couple little kids. And then right after that, I got pregnant with my twins. One of the biggest mercies and blessings in my entire life, but the pregnancy was crushing. The first half, I could hardly move because I was so sick, and the second half, I could hardly move because I couldn't breathe. (laughs) After that, seasons followed where we had months-long family illnesses. I had another surgery. There was plenty of sleep deprivation and the normal overwhelm of family life. There were nights where I measured sleep in minutes. There were months where I didn't leave my house a single time because I was too weak. I would sit in my rocking chair at night and I felt so alone, holding those babies, crying silent tears, and praying these desperate prayers to God in complete faith that I didn't even feel like I had. I would ask him, God, I know you are powerful and mighty to save me. And God, I know you love me. So why, why are you not intervening? It is so hard to be praying prayers like that, isn't it? When you feel like God isn't answering you. But sisters, he does answer. And he answered me, not in the ways I expected, but he provided so much. He provided loved ones to support me. He planted seeds of independence and creativity in my older kids. And he ripped idols out of my heart of independence and strength so that I learned in a new way to fully rely on his power. We have hope because suffering is temporary, yes. And whatever suffering we do experience, it reveals what's inside us. It shows that we are frail clay jars whose weakness makes it clear to onlookers and ourselves that victories we experience are God's power and not our own. Theme five is confidence. Paul has unshakable confidence in who God is. And key words you might see around that are sure, know, convinced, firmly believed, and continue. Paul calls Timothy to confidence in his last letter. And Paul doesn't just command it on parchment. He's modeled it throughout their ministry together. And he's now underscoring the importance of it to remind Timothy what he's already seen firsthand. There is a steadiness evident in Paul as he moves forward through every beating, every shipwreck, imprisonment, and more. He's confident but not brash, calm but not meek. He's not surprised or bewildered by his suffering. He has now even reached the end of his life in ministry, and his resolve is unshaken. During my first reading of 2 Timothy, I got a childhood song stuck in my head. Point of Grace sings the song Steady On, about what it looks like to walk with excitement about our promised future while we do the hard and holy work today. This kind of steadiness is not in my DNA. (laughs) It doesn't come naturally to me. 
The Myers-Briggs personality test calls my disposition turbulent, which seems apt. So the calling to be steady feels out of reach. But you know what? Even for my more naturally steady friends, this is difficult because we live in a broken world that upends our lives with illness and loss, temptation, and heartache. We are born with a sin nature that points us toward taking the easier way when things get difficult. Moving steadily forward seems too high a calling sometimes. But like we discussed earlier, God gives us so much to help us. He gives his word, his church, and even liturgical rhythms and rituals to remind us who he is. We can share Paul's confidence in God's character by studying the Bible together just like we're doing today. God has given us a story that shows us who he is. However, it's important to know that Paul knew the scriptures better than anyone when he was murdering people. Knowing what the scripture says is worth nothing if you do not let it transform who you are. Paul emphasizes the importance of this in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, when he describes Timothy's history in the word, the power of the word, and what it should be used for. In your summer study packet, Jillian already told you that you have an attributes of God sheet. Please use that throughout the study to keep track about what you're learning about God and his character. As we learn about who God is, we will be able to emulate Paul's sureness about what God is able to do. In your notes, your confidence might look a little like this. If God is blank, then I can be sure blank. If God is faithful, then I can be sure he will not leave me. If God is mighty, then I can be sure he is able to change my heart. If God is over all things, then I can be sure he's over my job, my nation, my family strife, my mental health. If God is my heavenly father, then I can be sure he loves me immeasurably and perfectly. Man, what a good God we have. Before we go to theme six, let's review. We've covered themes of remembering, teaching, suffering and shame, in you, and confidence. Have you noticed a few connections between these themes? Teaching spreads the gospel and also helps us remember who God is and who we are. When we remember who God is and the shame he's taken from us, we can have confidence and trust he's faithful, that he will complete his work inside us and go before us in suffering. Isn't this marvelous? In light of all this, let's look at our last theme. It's a good one. Theme six is be strengthened. And this, sisters, is how this impossible work becomes possible. There's a lot of key words. I'm going to fly through them. Be strengthened, fan into flame, power, love, self-discipline, weak, able, set apart, ready, complete, fulfill, make you wise, equipped, finished, kept, promise, God gave. Turning your binder to our main verse for the summer. It's 2 Timothy 2, I'm going to turn in mine too, 2, 1 and 2. And I love the song Kelly Gwynn wrote for us, so I can't read this without singing it. And I hope that wherever you are watching this, that you'll sing with me too. You then, my child, be strengthened by 
the grace that's in Jesus Christ and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also second timothy 2 verses 1 and 2 what tenderness we see from paul here he isn't saying to timothy this world is hard the work is impossible so no pressure to do it all or do it well no this last theme of strengthening is what undergirds the entire book of 2 Timothy. Paul doesn't have to say, no pressure, because the grace to strengthen Timothy has already been provided for him. Paul is calling Timothy to continue the work of Jesus without him. He doesn't hold back hard truth about enemies he might face, but he reassures Timothy that those enemies will not prevail because of the power of the Spirit in him. I want you to take a look at this map and notice the spread of churches during and after Paul's ministry. Sharing the euangelion, the good news, inviting others to pass it on, this had a domino effect that outlived Paul. When I consider the limitations of travel and technology in the first century and the myriad setbacks Paul encountered, it shouldn't look like this. That spread shouldn't have been that far and shouldn't have covered the entire world and reached us today, centuries later. It's certainly more than anyone could accomplish on their own, isn't it? All of the things Paul calls Timothy to do that we discussed in earlier themes, like remembering, teaching, suffering in you, confidence, they also equip him to do the work. As we step into obedience, we see firsthand the power of the Spirit, the sufficiency of the gospel, the reliability of God's word and God's unfailing love displayed in Jesus. Being strengthened by grace doesn't mean Timothy won't fail or experience setbacks. In fact, the entire reason he needs to be reminded to be strengthened is because of the inevitability of those setbacks. Turning your Bible to Philippians 4, 12, and 13. You can pause the video real quick to get there. Paul uses the same Greek word, be strengthened, this time about himself. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is just as confident Jesus' grace will strengthen Timothy as it did him and as it will us too. So we can move steady on. Let's pull it all together, sisters. Earlier, I asked you a couple questions. What does sharing or teaching the gospel look like for me right now? What could it look like? I'd like you to jot this down on the front page of your summer study packet and really revisit it over and over again over the next few weeks. Discuss it with trusted friends or your discussion group. Ask them for their input. It's worth taking time to ponder and pray about such a significant thing as ways you can grow as a kingdom worker. 
Sister, if there's only one thing you remember from today, I hope it's our main truth. God calls his children to hard and holy work, and he empowers us to do it. The ESV Global Study Bible has a note that says, God reigns, his kingdom has dawned. We take heart, remember the gospel, and we get to work. Work began on the very first page of the, gospel, of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God worked. Then he gave Adam and Eve his own work to do so they could be with him and be like him. God had created the world and everything in it to be good, whole, ordered, and fruitful. But then sin came. It corrupted the goodness. It addled the order. It broke the wholeness, and it thwarted the faithfulness or the fruitfulness. But our God, he loves this world too much to let it sit in squalor and disarray. Immediately after that first sin in Genesis 3, he went looking for his children, and he promised that serpent that one day he would be defeated. God moves toward the brokenness to restore it. He sent his son to suffer in it. He gives us this hard and holy work, the calling Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, because he's already restored us as children back into his family, and he is restoring us as fruitful laborers in his creation, just like he made us to be on day one. He doesn't want us to wait for the new heavens and the new earth to be fruitful laborers like we were before. He wants us to do the fruitful and joy-filled work right now in the middle of the world that needs restoring. He doesn't dilute the work to make it possible. He gives us everything he needs, we need. He gives his son, his spirit, his word, and his children so that we can do the hard and holy work. God calls his children to hard and holy work, and he strengthens us to do it. Ever since the fall, this kingdom work has been hard for every laborer, including the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He was called by God to share extremely difficult messages with people who had no interest in hearing them, and he nearly died as a result. He laments his suffering all the way through his book. And in Jeremiah 29, he wonders, what would it be like to just give up, to choose the easier path and be quiet? This is what he says. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Oh, sisters, we are tired in our bones with the hurt in this world, aren't we? But God, he's lit a fire in those same bones, and he calls us to go out and do his work. He commissions the reconciled to bring reconciliation, the redeemed to bring redemption. He calls his children to bring adoption into this world and everyone in it. He gives us good gifts and positions us as gift givers. Oh, Paul has urgency and clarity that compels us to wonder, what other work could be greater than this? What could be greater than fulfilling this calling? He tells Timothy this calling is momentous. The world is a mess, and God has given you everything you need to fulfill that calling here and now in the middle of the mess. In 2 Timothy, sisters, Paul reminds us there will be suffering. Move steady on. There will be distractions. Move steady on. There will even be times when it seems like evil may win the day. 
but because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the grace he gives us, we can do the work, prevail, and move steady on. I'd like you to move with me. Let's move steady on and pass it on this summer. He has given us everything we need to do it. I hope that you feel invigorated and excited to dive into this word by Paul like I do. Maybe you feel overwhelmed, and that's okay, too. I have a few things to share with you about this week's reading, and hopefully they will help. This week, we'll read 2 Timothy 1, 1 1-14. I want you to remember the themes we talked about today as you see them pop up, and you'll continue with prayer, repeated reading, and annotation. I'd like you to begin using cross-references, and you can start with 2 Timothy 1-7. You may have noticed... I pulled in a lot of scripture from all over the Bible, and there was even more that I wish I could have shared with you today. We use cross-references to help us let scripture interpret scripture, and we also use them to see that the Bible is God's one big story about his rescue plan. In order to know how to use cross-references, please watch the Dayton Women in the Word at Home in the Word video about cross-references, and you'll have everything you need to get started. Jot down and then read the cross-references listed in your app or your study Bible, but don't stop there. Let that launch you into some deep study. Flip there in your actual physical Bible and find that cross-reference and read it in the whole section from which it came. Studying that cross-reference in its context will bring such rich, deep truth to 2 Timothy 1.7. Throughout this week, I would love it if you shared what God is teaching you on social media, and you can use the hashtag DWITW2Timothy. Let's pray, shall we? Oh God, Lord, you are so good to us. Thank you for using insufficient clay jars like us to reveal your sufficiency. You entrust the holy work of your kingdom to us, and you empower and strengthen us to do it. God, we love you, and we commit this week's study to you, Lord. Amen. Sisters, I can't wait to hear what God reveals to you, and I hope you have a great week. is an encouragement to you, no matter where you are in your study of 2 Timothy. Here on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast, you can listen to our teachers walk through 2 Timothy throughout the remainder of summer study, with a new lecture being released every Wednesday. All resources for summer study can be found on our website, daytonwomeninthewordcom backslash 2-timothy-resources. May God meet you in your study of 2 Timothy this summer.